0: I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how delivery went from convenience to crucial.
1: In a pre-COVID universe, the commissions from these third-party delivery service providers were really high, and you were seeing oftentimes they were as high as 30%, right?
0: I mean, all food is about basically the history of money and the history of technological change, but takeout in particular. I'll go ring a doorbell and watch somebody come outside and wipe down their door and their doorbell after I leave. It's kind of creepy, kind of weird, but that's... This state of uh, where we are now. Tune in to Meet in Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We got uh, Nastasi the Hammer Lopez, who's currently in the stem of Ford. Uh, on the sound, Stanford on the sound. Uh, how you doing, Stas?
3: Yeah, I'm good.
2: Yeah? Uh, yeah, every, every, you got power again, you have internet again. Yep. Let me get get this straight. The, 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 the pole that got knocked over, they just put the pole directly on top of your old internet, that's what happened, and just yeah. boom, cut it yeah. right off? Yes. And then you went out there and spliced the whole, yes. spliced the whole McGillie mm-hmm. together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it sounds – that checks out. Yeah. That checks out. Now, get this straight. Let me get this straight. Your dad is a telecoms professional. Right. Right? And yet, because he was working in California on other people's telecoms, he would not get on the horn to help you walk through your telecoms issues.
3: He doesn't have FaceTime on his phone because he
2: uses (laughs) – his own company <laughs> AT&T for his 12th. So, Nastasia so, Lopez, your dad has worked for AT&T for a how mil- long? A million years. <laughs> a million years. And and yet AT&T throttles your cell yeah. account. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, I need to switch. I'm going to switch. Uh, did you ever talk to him about, and we can put this out to the, uh, to the listeners as well. Cause I'm super curious about, have you spoken to him about the, uh, telephone pioneers of America?
3: Yeah. He said my mom was part of it, but she did not renew or something. And he has no interest in being part of it. And I said, okay, but do
2: they have any of the cookbooks? Do they know about the no. cookbooks.
3: He said, yeah, yeah. I know there's some cookbooks. We don't have any. All
2: right. So for those of you that I'm curious whether anyone knows about this, cause there's so many of them, I don't know what to get, but way back in the day, like when Alexander Graham Bell was still alive, after the after you know the Bell Company had been around for, I don't know, like 20, 30 years. The, at that time, the old timers were like, we wanna start like a fraternal organization, like the Masons or something, but just for telephone people. So they had the telephone pioneers of America. And at the time you needed to have been working in telecom, which at that time was just Bell, right? For like 20 something years to be uh, a member. And so it was kind of like this fraternal organization for telephone company people. And, you know, it's morphed, but it's still you have to work in telecom to be to be in it. But in the, I guess, 70s and 80s, maybe even starting earlier and maybe even going a little bit later, like all of these telephone pioneers of America had cookbooks for all their different chapters like, you know, Kansas City and whatnot, and they're all, some of them are somewhat collectible, but I have no idea whether they're any good. So if any readers have any knowledge on the Telephone Pioneers uh, or the Pioneers of America cookbook series, let us know, because I'm curious. I don't want to go on an internet buying spree, uh, but I'm a freaking sucker for a series of books. Are you guys familiar with the Rivers of America book series? No. So again, sometime like after I think the war, they hired a bunch of like famous off- authors to just write books about particular rivers. And because they're all done by different kind of well-known authors, they all have a different kind of sp- spirit and flavor to them. So I ordered a couple. I think I ordered the Connecticut and, and one other. But there's so many that I wasn't going to get into it. And also when I was reading it, I was like, nah, it's not. What I'm, it's not. You know, I don't have time to read stuff that's not a, either a technical manual about food or a technical manual about food. Like, that's basically all I have time to read, you know? Nastasia. on the other hand, your favorite thing to read is uh, memoirs from rock stars, right?
3: Yes, they are my favorite.
1: Wait, which is,
2: what's the best memoir from a rock star? Uh,
3: Anthony Kiedis is really good. Oh yeah. Really, really good, yeah.
2: And you said that Anthony Kiedis admits that he's not a good ballad singer. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know what? I like someone with some self-awareness. Yes. But yet, how many millions of dollars has he made singing ballads? So yeah. many. Define
1: define good.
2: Because <laughs> he seems to be doing all right. Well, what I'm saying is he doesn't respect himself as a ballad singer. Yeah. He keeps accepting the checks, though. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, I totally would. You know? I mean, I don't know. It all started going south with that. And I'm not going to get into it again. Um... Remember, like, I was, they were one of my top three favorite bands, right, Uh, at one point in my life, Uh, but I have not purchased an album that came out after Blood Sugar Sex Magic. If it gives you an idea of what era I was listening to, yeah, I was more of a, uh, am I allowed to say... Socks on cocks, because that was their thing back in the day.
3: No, all of our little children, no, they can't know that. They,
2: no the Chili Peppers used to be famous for playing naked, except for they would have uh, gym socks pulled over their junk, like a, a full junk hold, so it was like nothing else. Like, uh, I don't know whether they secretly used tape to make sure they didn't come off or whatnot, but they were, that was their, their thing. But they stopped doing that um, right around mother's milk. Um, which is when I started seeing them live in concert. It was on the Mother's Milk tour. And uh, when I saw them, they were wearing pants. Like, both times I saw them live, they were wearing pants. And, Nastasia, did they ever go back to that after that era? And <laughs> I just missed it?
3: They did, yeah. When they did Woodstock uh, 98? I can't remember what year they did Woodstock.
2: Yeah, well, I hope they were in shape. Um, it takes a certain kind of being – I mean, they were like – Completely like thin, high on drugs, freak shows. When they did it earlier, I wonder what they were like in the mid '90s. They're probably still pretty I think ripped, s- right?
1: Still kind of the same. All right. All all of that still.
2: All of that still. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, for those of you that have ever lived in or spent time in New York or Lower Manhattan, we have a uh, we have a fairly. Large Jehovah's Witness kind of community around here, right? Because you have the Watchtower stuff, like over in the over in Brooklyn, right over the bridge, where from where I live. You guys know what I'm talking about? Nope. No, you guys live here? You familiar with Jehovah's Witness? Yes. Okay, so they hand out these pamphlets, right? I'm not going to get into religion because obviously we don't do we don't, but like they hand out these pamphlets, and they have for many years, right? And so you know one one of the ones that you know, kind of I, I always would see is called uh, like God's Peaceful New World, right? And you can Google this so you can see the pictures I'm talking about, like God's Peaceful New World, you can live there. And there's various over the years, they've had different ones. But the one that I remember is like a picture, and there's like like a, like a little white girl, a little black boy, like some adults. Everyone's holding hands and drawing and hanging out in nature, and then, sounds okay so far, right? There's a dog, right? And then there's a lamb, and here's where it gets weird. There's like a polar bear, and there's like a cheetah, and, like, and there's like a goat and a lion, and like, you know, one of the little boys is petting a lion, and, and there's a bull and a toucan. And they're all hanging out in like what looks to be a New England kind of fall landscape, right? So it's like this is like the ultimate idea of, of, of paradise that they have. And it's always struck me this kind of weird image of these animals that would never live together just on a geographic basis, much less the fact that they would rip each other to shreds. But here they are living, you know, all together, you know, everything like it fantastic picture to, to look at and just be like hmm okay and they would hand these out on the streets down here where where I live anyway you guys ever seen this picture all right so I saw the New York real-life equivalent of this yesterday when I was uh, walking home it was amazing so there was a there was a knockdown uh, building right and I looked into the rubble of where the knockdown building used to be and All of a sudden, I see it's full of animals. So usually when you see that, it's like sparrows and pigeons, right? Because that's what it's like here. But this one was like, it was like God's peaceful new world. It was rats with the pigeons, with the sparrows, like a feral cat, all just kind of hanging out together. Like no one was fighting. It was amazing. It was real New York, peaceful world. Amazing. I have never seen that many rats in the daytime in the open, like there must have been something so incredibly delicious there that the rats were like, to hell with it. Or maybe the rats are smart enough to know that there's a fence and I can't like run over that. We're not going to get, uh, Nastasia's boy. Um, um, uh, oh my God, his name is our, our friend. His name just went out of my head, Rat Kicker.
3: Oh, Robert Bohr.
2: Yeah, mm. if Robert Bohr had been there, it would have been like a video game, like like uh, like Duck Hunt, like Robert Bohr's Duck Hunt for rats. If he was wearing his good rat kicking shoes, he likes to kick rats with wingtips, right?
1: Yes. Claire, mute yourself if you're not talking because we hear feedback. Claire, Claire's on. Secret Claire. Uh, there's a secret Claire in the room.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
2: the yes. <users>. It's me. <laughs> oh <my> ah, what's <laughs> up, Secret <laughs> Claire? secret claire giving herself away with her background noise yeah
1: if she had just muted herself immediately i wouldn't have noticed but friend know. of the
2: friend of the show claire how you doing Bad husband, <laughs> where are you
5: oh my gosh i'm good how's it going with you guys
2: oh fantastic i closed my bar permanently last week so there's that. It's awesome happy times i fun, saw fun that times. on instagram
5: yeah. i'm sorry
2: yeah it sucks yeah it sucks so uh what's what's going on with you where are you
5: uh, well, now I'm back in Mexico City. I did go back to Tulum to work on the honey bee business. Oh,
2: did you find anything good? Did you like the honey?
5: I love the honey. It's I'm letting it. I'm I'm letting it percolate and putting some feelers out, some bee feelers out.
2: For those of you that don't know, Claire was on. I realized she was uh, in Tulum, and I told her that this is the world, the only place really, where you can get this melopona honey, which is a slightly lower bricks honey made by a relatively endangered stingless honeybee from this area of Mexico. All right, so go ahead. So tell us your your story. Well,
5: so I actually have a question. Okay. Well, I'm going to, it's a, as always, it's a story with a question. So Stas, are you there? I'm here. <laughs> so it was my birthday two weeks ago. As some of you may know, I had a goddess-themed birthday party. It was super magical.
0: Oh,
2: my God. <laughs> Goddess, and, did you did – you, uh, Why are, you, are, why are you, we are you, all invited? Are you familiar with the uh, 1980s band Soho, whose uh, best album was Goddess and whose hit single was Hippie Chick? No, maybe I should look into that. You should listen. You, your theme song should have been Got to Be a Goddess.
5: Got to be a goddess, got mm. to be a goddess. I don't yeah. know if that was the vibe, but I'll look into it.
2: <laughs> you weren't happy about being a goddess? It's like, no, oh, gotta be a goddess. <laughs> so many people ask you for favors. <laughs> so many people to turn into spiders. <laughs> Is that what, more the vibe? No, it was more just like relax. Uh, yeah, you don't get to be. I guess I mean people think it's probably relaxing being a goddess. Let but her like, ask
3: her question.
5: No, it's a story,
2: Stas. <laughs> it's a, it's story. a story
5: with a question. Okay, so anyway, Stas and I, you know, have been friends for like over a decade.
2: So where did this start? Saying, Were you guys the Switzerland people?s
5: Yeah, we met in Switzerland teaching, and then we cooked for a bunch of kids in camp. Oh, Pat Posey's here! Oh my gosh, this is so fun! Hey, Pat you can stay on mute because I'm doing my story.
2: Whoa. <laughs> I like it how Claire comes on our show and tells someone else to go on mute. Strong.
1: Well, it's goddess hot. Goddess
2: level control, goddess level control. You All know, right, go ahead.
1: Zoom asked me, they were like, do you want to put a password on this meeting? I was like, nah. <laughs>
2: If you guys want to come on and flash your chonies, remember, there's no video here, so it doesn't work. I have regrets.
5: (laughs) Okay. Anyway, so Stas and I have been friends for a really long time, and we usually used to be together. Well, in Switzerland, I always celebrated my birthday with Stas. And now, you know, since I live in Mexico, we haven't been together for the last couple of years. And so, you know, I'm having my goddess-themed birthday, and I'm, like, so happy, and, like, all my friends are here, and it's, like, this whole thing. And then my friend is like, Claire, there's something for you outside. And I knew that my friends were going to get me a mariachi band. And so I was like, oh, my God, it's the mariachi band. But no, it was another friend holding a cake. And they're like, "Nastasia sent this to you. And I was like, oh, my God, because some of you may remember three birthdays ago, Stas. Flew from New York to Barcelona and surprised me with my favorite milk bar birthday cake and a frozen turkey sandwich with a side of Russian dressing and a bag of salt and vinegar chips, which is my favorite
2: New York City meal. What's a frozen turkey sandwich?
5: Just a jelly
2: sandwich. I I
5: love the bodega sandwich. I get turkey. Stoss is rolling her eyes right now. I get turkey, cheddar cheese, lettuce, mustard, mayonnaise, uh, side of Russian dressing, salt and vinegar chips on a roll and it's like literally my favorite meal in the world only oh rivaled by Mayonnaise?
2: Hillstone. Mayonnaise? Yeah, did I not say mayonnaise? I don't remember but I was making sure because there would have been some real problems. No, of course, duh. lots Frozen just because you Nastasia was preserving it for shipment. You don't typically eat it frozen. This is Ew, some sort no. of No, and honestly, right.
5: I, I think I took a bike, but I felt a little bit weird because I was like, "Is it normal to eat frozen processed meat?"
2: Now, did it's just uh, traveled cross continent? Uh, it's, all, it's all good. Did Nastasia send a cake, Mama Lopez style, wrapped in wet newspaper?
3: No, I <laughs> delivered it. I hand delivered it to Spain.
2: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. No, okay. No, literally that, the, brought it No, the cake this time. Me. The cake this the, time. The
3: cake this time was from Mexico
5: City. It was from a the, shop in Mexico City. The, right, right, right. It was from Nito in Mexico City, which we love. It's so good. Anyway, so I made the rash decision to go. I was like, I need to go back to Tulum because of the bee business and some other business affairs I had to take
2: care of. Wait, 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 like right then you see the cake, you're like, F this party, I'm out. We drove to Tulum right right away, like (laughs) I'm trying to understand the timing. The next
5: morning. And so I'm like, I gotta go back to Tulum. And so I leave my cake and I'm like so bummed because I was like, oh my God, it was so good. And my roommate was kind enough to save it for me. And so I ended up only staying in Tulum for like seven days. And so I come back and there's my cake and she had like sliced it in Tupperware. And so it's like sliced. There was like half of it left.
2: Mm, and yeah, Real good roommate, ate half your cake. Nice.
5: <laughs> I don't know where the other half went, but I'm not worried. So my question is, well, it's actually too late because I already did it, but I ate the rest of my cake this weekend.
2: Is that gross? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's gross in the fact that I can guarantee you I can guarantee you from a distance of however many thousand miles we are from each other that it was stale, stale, stale.
5: No, no, because Dave, it was it was better. It was so moist. And that, that's what I love about the milk bar cakes is they're so moist. I thought you said and this was
2: from Mexico City.
5: It was, but I'm just saying milk bar birthday cake is my favorite cake in the world. It's like oh. my barometer of moistness.
2: The higher fat a cake is, uh, the better it will resist staling. Also, uh, depending on what flour mix they use, it will resist. Staling. It ain't ever going to kill you. You could dig up a, a cake from the pyramids and eat it. You know what I mean? As long as it doesn't have mold on it. But that what about the you, egg? You know. It's cooked. You do not need to sweat it. Like it is. Like from a from a safety standpoint, cake is a you know zero. Roughly 0%. Not roughly. It's like low water activity. Ain't nothing bad going to happen. Like certain cakes can develop molds if they're like very moist. Um, But, you know, aside from that, it's like, you know, if you keep, um, if you keep like bread in a, like sliced bread in, in Ziplocs, they'll like stay kind of soft because the liquid doesn't leave, Mm -hmm. but they'll, but they'll mold. Uh, whereas if you leave them out, like the liquid can get away and they, and they won't mold and and they just turn into breadcrumbs. So if it was still moist because it was sealed in Tupperware, I mean, it was probably still technically staling, right? Because like the, the staleness mimics drying out in some ways, but a lot of it's just about what's happening to, um, what's happening to the starch in terms of recrystallizing. So some of that is sucking water back in, but also it's just a structural change to the starch. And so, typically, you know, cake, when you leave it out, and this is why what, the best thing to do is to freeze it. Oh, um, oh yeah. like
5: a wedding cake.
2: Yeah, but you freeze it. At like, uh, if, like what we do is we'll f- when we freeze things here, because I remember, you know, the, the classic mistake someone makes when they're freezing something, like let's say you make a pastel of banana bread right and which I do here uh, on occasion and then you want to freeze it like you want to slice it but put a single sheet of freezer paper in between each slice then put the whole thing into a zippy and like get rid of most of the air so you don't get a lot of like recrystallization on the outside don't like suck a huge thing on it because you don't want to like squish the the bread too much and then you freeze it like that because um otherwise the moist edges of the things will freeze each other together and this is especially true with cake so with some cakes are soft enough right so it depends on the cake some cakes are soft enough to slice frozen so as long as you cut it like in half you can just slice pieces off with like a real hard push of a of a a chef's knife down and you'll get some smearing on the edge where you crush it when it's frozen but you know it's good and i actually like to eat i eat frozen cake i like frozen cookies uh, there's a story that uh, Jen, w- when, you know, Miley, my sister-in-law Miley, is the uh, chief editor of the Food Network magazine, editor-in-chief, she launched it, and before that was with, uh, at Rachel Ray, before that was, you know, Time Out and a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, so uh, when she first moved to New York in the 90s, she stayed with us for, you know, a couple of weeks before she found her apartment. And my wife, Jen, was worried because, you know, I don't know, I guess I was packing on some pounds or whatever. And Miley kept baking chocolate chip cookies. So, like, kept every day chocolate chip cookies. Miley's special skill in life is that she can make muffins out of anything. So, like, if there's nothing in the house, she'll go outside and scoop some gravel out of the driveway and somehow make a delicious muffin out of it. It's like her—she can MacGyver any muffin. Anyway, so— my wife told Miley, "Yo, throw throw those chocolate, throw those cookies in the freezer, so Dave doesn't just pound them all when he gets home at like 3 a.m. from the from the uh, studio, because I was in grad school at the time for fine arts." And so Miley does that, and then in the morning, like they caught me, I came in, I'm eating them frozen out of the freezer, and I go them's good frozen and so in my family now them's good frozen is a phrase we use like a hundred percent of the time We're like, them's good frozen because i just pull them out of the freezer and eat them anyway so you can eat cake frozen and do it that way so if it stayed moist because it was in the tupperware god bless it from from a textural standpoint from an organoleptic and textural standpoint if you're not going to eat cake within a day or two i would freeze it but not from a, a safety standpoint
5: amazing thank you so much really
2: appreciate your insight when are you gonna get when are you gonna taste this freaking honey have you already tasted it you just haven't researched it enough or have you not tasted it yet
5: i'm trying to find a vendor i'm trying to find a
2: there's a honey store i don't know if the no we want we want to go
5: to the source and make our own dave and claire's exquisite honey
2: listen i mean i'm happy (laughs) to have claire but like you understand like these people who make it like that is like one of their. That's like, like that's that that's their life cultural thing. thing. Yeah. Okay. No, we're gonna partner
5: with a family.
2: Okay. I know you can
1: short a publicly traded company, but how do I reverse invest in David <laughs> Well, uh, that's
2: an, inter- that's Wait, an interesting. Wait, that's like question.
5: actually hurtful. Why would you say that?
2: <laughs> That's an interesting question, and I just learned it from an episode of Billions that I saw uh, recently. You have to find the main competitor, right, of whoever it is you're trying to short. That's not public. Invest in them, and then tank the non-publicly traded place so that the one that you can invest in goes up.
5: Something tells me that none of these are public.
2: No, these are like families who these are raised in like in like hollow logs. And, yeah. like, you know, the community is raised in a hollow log. Which, by the way, all you guys familiar with Richard Scarry's I'm a Bunny and I Live in a Hollow Tree? No. I don't even know oh, what the, that such is. such a cute freaking kid's book. I'm a bunny and I live in a hollow tree. Look it up. Richard Scarry. So Richard Scarry, you think of Richard Scarry as, like, you know, the guy that, like, like books with, like, helicopters and planes and boats and, like, cats with captain hats on. You know what I'm talking about? But I'm a Bunny, extremely sweet book.
3: All right.
5: Thank you, Claire. Okay. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Have an amazing Tuesday.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's going to be fantastic. And I hear we also have... it is going to be
5: fantastic. Uh, (laughs) That's up to you.
2: Oh, it is? I get to choose whether the day is fantastic or not?
5: (laughs) Oh, Lord. Okay. Bye.
2: Bye.
0: I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: And I hear that we also have a uh, friend of the show and friend of uh, Nastasia and chief uh, saxophone didgeridoo. And he, what, what else does he do? Does he do oboe? He doesn't do recorder, correct? Because he wouldn't touch that damn instrument? don't know.
4: That's Phil's territory.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, stay away from it. You do do you also do oboe? Can you do an oboe?
4: I do. Yeah, I actually I found an oboe last year that has a fingering system that is based on a saxophone fingering system, so I can play it.
2: But yeah. it, it isn't it a oboe like a fundamentally different technology though.
4: Uh, no, it's it's really the same technology. It's the the major difference is the reed situation. A saxophone has a, uh, a a mouthpiece that has one piece of wood, one small shaved piece of wood attached to it, and that piece of wood you blow through that mouthpiece and that piece of wood and that vibrates, and uh, that's called a single reed. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is also what a clarinet has. And then an oboe is called a double reed. So instead of a mouthpiece, it actually just has two little thin pieces of wood that are strapped together and you blow through that and that buzzes and that's what creates the
2: noise. Now, is it is it an oboist or an obist?
4: Uh, I would say oboist generally, but I would say obist for comedic purposes.
2: There you go. Now you also play the ocarina.
4: I do play the ocarina. Yeah. What was
2: your professional opinion of the Smash Mouth uh, All Star uh, arena situation?
4: I uh, have not heard it. What? I you know.
2: Just I, do that. I, I'm sorry do that it.
4: that was not included in my prep dossier for this phone call.
2: Yeah. Do you also play clarinet or no?
4: I do play clarinet. Yeah, I Let started on clarinet.
2: Let me ask you a question. I have known saxophonists who like jazz style saxophonists, who detest jazz clarinet. How do you feel about, is that a thing or is it just the people I have known? And do you uh, do you have any insight into Um,
4: You know, I would say that uh, in the early days of jazz, in the mid uh, early, mid 20th century, a lot of players who were playing played all kinds of wind instruments. And a lot of times in big bands and things, you're asked as a saxophonist to play sa- uh, clarinet and flute as well. Um, And we have people like Benny Goodman, uh, who was, uh, you know, in the forefront of of jazz of his time and was uh, predominantly a clarinet player. Um, I don't, I I actually, I prefer playing clarinet in jazz idiom because uh, you have a lot more latitude to squeak and play out of tune, which are, you know, signature styles, signatures of my style of clarinet playing.
2: Wow, wow. and what are your theories when you have a saxophone on like, you know, the people like they, they freak out because that one little dent in the saxophone is what gives that particular instrument the sweet, sweet tone. If you found that to be the case for what you do?
4: Uh, you know, I try not to get too wrapped up in equipment because it's a, it's a dangerous wormhole to go down. Um, you know, I have a mouthpiece that I've been playing on for 20 years at this point, and I don't feel like I want to change it. Um, until it breaks and you need it and uh, you know dense in the saxophone it saxophones are kind of in in some ways They're like they're like tanks you can you can beat the shit uh, the stuff out of them mm and uh uh and they'll still go it's you know but it's really it's the mechanical details of it because if you look at a saxophone up close there's all kinds of little rods and uh you know holes that have to be covered by pads and things like that and springs and so the mechanism has to be in good shape and the body has to be uh has to be in in such a shape that all of those things can happen as they are supposed
2: to and as long as that's happening it's going to be fine all right, now I hear That's you're, not you're why com- Pat is here. Pat is I hear here. you've come on to talk about cooking alone, Nastasia. <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, but first I'm I'm still a little riled from finding out that Claire got a cake because I've never gotten a cake.
2: Well, you don't deserve one, Pat.
3: Your birthday's in 12 days, right? You'll get a cake. Uh, it is
2: now. Now he's gonna it get is. the cake. Now, also, wait a second. Are you familiar with Yes and Chris Squire, the bassist who played? Theoretically, I've been told with a quarter.
4: Uh, I know of yes. I don't know particularly about the bassist.
2: Yeah, he was known for playing with a quarter. When I was playing bass, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, I'm gonna do anything to sound like cool. And I tried to play with a quarter. You know what it sounds like? Mm. Garbage.
1: Mm.
2: First of all, I don't like playing bass with a pick at all. But like, playing with a quarter was even worse than playing with a pick. Maybe he didn't play with a quarter because he's probably playing with some sort of British money or something because the milling on the edge of the quarter makes like a real terrible catch, 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 catch on the – it wasn't like a good sharp attack. I think it would have been better with a nickel – because of the smooth edge. It's the milling on the quarter that makes it so crappy to play with, I think. Right, well, because... is it also
4: the heaviness? I mean, first of all, I've never heard of a bassist playing with a pick. Uh, that seems like blasphemy, but, you know, that's not really my realm. Um, and secondly, I wonder about the the density, the mass of the metal, uh, and how that might affect it, because it seems to me that something lighter might be a little better, but uh, I agree
2: with you on You definitely, on
1: the you want to go cashless here. You want to go credit card. <laughs> it's a much better pick.
2: People, you, you can play with, uh, you've, you've used a credit card as a pick? yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder whether I wonder whether bassists who play with picks are more likely to be that bassist who is actually a guitarist who just took the Absolutely. job as bassist because guitarist was Yeah. One hundred percent. I hate that kind of bass playing. People who don't come from bass but like come from guitar land or like there's already two good guitarists, I guess I'll take bass. You know what I mean? So like,
1: I can Weak. do it. I know I, I can hum a tune and I don't wanna do chords anymore, it's fine, I'll do this.
2: Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Whatever, whatever. All right, so talk to us. And the reason why Yes came up is because we were talking about uh, owner of a lonely heart much better than uh, owner of a broken heart. And Nastasia disagrees and wants to reverse the song and says that the owner of a broken heart much better than the owner of a lonely heart. What do you think?
4: I'm sorry, was that addressed to me? Yes. Uh, you know, broken heart, lonely in the heart. It's all—it's all the same thing. I think when you get to uh, such an advanced age, uh, uh, you know, you've—you've you've lived a life, you've experienced it all, and all of that comes through in everything you do.
3: Now, Pat, talk about <laughs> talk about how excited you were at the beginning of quarantine when you were making bread, and then how that sort of just went down as the months went. Uh, First of
2: all, what's your pod? Before you start, I want I, like, when we're talking quarantine stuff, we need to know your pod like, like your level of aloneness, like all this stuff, just give us the deets and then go into the, into the arc.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's changed a lot for the first uh, month or so of quarantine. I had taken a lover and, uh, and
2: that doesn't that like, I know that sounds very British, but here that means they've been kidnapped. Yeah. Uh,
4: you know, it might be described that way. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how he's talking about it outside of this, but, um, (laughs) You know, we, uh, uh, he came and he basically lived here for a month and uh, it was great for a couple of weeks and then it was like okay for a week and then it was just terrible for two weeks. And uh, during that time we were cooking a lot, uh, making extravagant meals. He got obsessed with the, uh, 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 the art of French cooking and um, was cooking these huge meals out of that. And then uh, as I was losing weight, he was gaining weight from all of the butter, and, uh, but the, the situation was really good. And during that time, of course, you didn't know what was happening, and so that's when the, the food hoarding started. You know, you couldn't get things. I paid at some point uh, $60 for a 25 bag of flour online because it was the only flour I could get anywhere. I bought yeast from a guy on a bike in a parking lot down in Silver Lake.
2: Well, that's creepy. Uh,
4: it was shady, but you know, you did what you had to do.
2: Was it SAF Red, the one pound bag?
4: Uh, it was not, no, it was like a little tiny, it was a tiny, I think it was, uh, uh just about a, a
2: four ounce thing of yeast. So how much is a dime bag of yeast going for, uh, during full <laughs> Corona uh, it
4: pandemic? was like $10, it was pretty reasonable.
2: Oh, no, that's, that's not reasonable! <laughs> all right, go
4: ahead. Uh, Maybe for
2: California prices!
4: <laughs> so, uh, you know, on the on the other side, gas got really cheap around that time, so it all balanced out. Um... But yeah, so I started cooking. I got a I got a starter. I got a sourdough starter from a neighbor, and uh, and started cooking. And then uh, when my lover left, suddenly I was left with all of this food, and all of the food that I had was uh, was in quantity and designed for these big lavish meals, you know. And suddenly I was alone. And uh, I had a few friends, but I had I had sort of not been hanging out with anybody, you know.
2: You sort of hoarded down uh, in that in that first initial phase. So you weren't uh, with potted them. with them, but would they would they hang with you, or were you doing distance hangs?
4: They would, but you know, in in that first in that first uh, in the first month of me being alone, uh, it was it was it was sort of rolling that out, and I and I had like I didn't know what the etiquette was. You know, at that point, everybody else had started uh, hanging out with other people during that first month a little bit, uh, and I had not really done that because I had been holed up at home with uh, with the lover. So um, anyway, hell this food? And then, uh, so that first month of me being alone was kind of hell because I was, you know, having to go through these lavish three-hour meal preparations and then enjoy them myself for the next four days. Uh, and, uh, and then things started to even out a bit. Then I started, you know, going through different cycles of how to uh, prepare food for myself as a single person. And, uh, and now I've arrived at a very good place. I'm, I'm, I'm in a good place with it now.
3: You were at a really bad place with it though where like even looking at the things in your fridge made you angry.
2: Yeah, thank you for reminding me about that Nastasia. Well, that's why Nastasia, I'm sure had you call in because she wants some of the anger and the have, vis- visceral hatred.
3: I just have this text from him uh, July 19th. I just googled <laughs> Mexican green beans because I have to eat these green beans, but I also want to have tacos later.
2: Yeah, I, I... green bean taco would be. I'm trying to think about a green bean taco. Well,
4: July, July was rough. I'm not going to lie. July
2: was rough. Um,
4: you know, we still had, it was weird. June, June gloom lasted well into July here in Los Angeles. So it was. What's it, kind June of a June gloom? June gloom is a thing that happens in coastal California, on the su- in Southern California in the summer, uh, where it's like dark and gloomy for most of June. It's oh,
2: like that's when I should go there. The oh, my God. I didn't know there was a season where I would like the weather in Los Angeles. <laughs> It's, um, it's gloomy out? It's gloomy. It's actually gloomy out right now.
4: Yeah, it's lovely. Oh,
2: man. Oh, sweet.
4: Yeah, I just started wearing pants again this week for the first time in a month. You don't wear... You, you wear shorts? I wear shorts through all of August.
2: I am not into... Uh, into like uh, I know that it's not cool, but I just don't wear shorts ever. Never. No one's ever seen my legs in public. Uh, I went swimming this weekend for the first time in... I don't know years because i was I was forced to, and I had to i I wore a shirt in, don't worry, I wasn't like close to being naked out there, but uh i yeah I had to wear a, like my bathing suit out there, and I was like, mm, the legs mm, don't like it
4: well, so the green bean tacos were excellent <laughs> <laughs> um.
2: Did no, you actually I make the, green
4: the, bean tacos? No, the tacos, no, I did not make green bean tacos. I, I had green beans and I needed to use them. And you know, the thing is, is that I, uh, I got into a cycle in July where most of what I was making was, was protein. I would say like before, in early July and late June, the cycle that I was in was frozen stuff from Trader Joe's. Um, and, uh, and then I got a grill. And then it turned into grilling protein every night, uh, which was great. But it meant that then I just like I got in a few weeks in, I started to uh, my body started to tell me that I needed to eat more ve- vegetables. And well, there's
2: whole there's whole theories of thought on, uh, you know, whole cult diets based on eating only meat. But you, you found it wasn't pleasant for your body. Uh, no, are not a was, member of that cult. It
4: was it, it was for a while. And then uh, and then it became not.
2: Yeah. So, uh, what is a Mexican green bean as opposed to the green beans that we get? Uh,
4: I'm not. I'm not really sure. I just did that because I was wondering if uh, you know. I, I had these green beans. I wanted to make tacos, so I wanted to prepare the green oh, oh, beans in oh, oh. a way that would like go along you... well with the, with the tacos.
2: I understand. It's not a variety of green bean that I should be aware of. He wanted green beans done as though it was going to provide him with like Southern California, Mexican flavors. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. I kind of ah. just
4: wanted to see what people do. And, and usually as I've, uh, as, as Nastasia knows, when I lived in New York, I never cooked and started cooking when I got out to California. And um, so usually when I cook, I I'll go on, you know, I'll Google a, my idea and then look at 10 recipes and then just go into the kitchen and see what I can find and start throwing it all together. So it was, you know, it was basically like cumin and Mexican oregano and, Mm -hmm. I'm sure it tastes fine. Yeah, it was was good. And, you know, my poop was a lot better after that, so. Wow.
2: All right. Nice. Well, I'm glad to hear it. You know, uh, people, I know people that used to keep poop diaries.
4: I've heard of that. Yeah. Nastasia and Uh, I keep an informal poop diary going.
2: Well, she did live in Italy for a while, and you can't live in Italy without being obsessed with poop. True or false, Nastasia? Yeah. So let me ask you uh, a question. Uh, you're, You're familiar with wax beans? I've heard of them heard of them oh my god well you know yellow the the things that look like green beans but they're yellow oh yeah yeah uh i think that they are the superior bean huh i love wax beans love them why is that um i think that when you cook them they maintain their squeak a little bit better and i love i love like a fast sauteed like 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 butter like butter bacon little little bit of sugar salt like fast sautéed squeaky bean mm-hmm. love a squeaky bean John what are your thoughts on the on the wax versus the green
1: um I don't know if I've given it too much thought I think probably more green than wax I don't know I don't know I don't know if I like the squeak as much doesn't love bother me
2: but yeah well here's I mean like I think that like it's like it's like cheese curds it's like if you if you're not thinking about the squeak, the squeak is just there, and it's like me or me, or me and mop. So you're not thinking about it much, right? But if you're like, if if you go into the whole thing being like, I'm gonna get the squeak out of it, Savor then the then you like the squeak. I like the squeak, and I know Pat does because he told me he does when he's playing his clarinet. Likes the squeak. Who doesn't love a good squeak? Listen, so I uh, I want to ask you about that because. I have, over the course of the last
4: month, when it got, you know, it's just been deathly hot here uh, for the last month. It's cool off right now, but later in the week, it's gonna get up into the 90s and 100s again. Um, and so I uh, have been doing all of my cooking outside on my grill. Um, what can I do with the beans on the grill? I mean, what's the best way to to prepare those on the grill?
2: Well, I don't know if you know this, but beans don't burn on the grill. Oh, boom, Jefferson's reference, and None of you got it, Uh Anyway. Uh, how many times have you watched the Jeffersons in your life? Thank you for making me feel young. Yeah, yeah. Not I'm young, the Jeffersons will. I mean, I haven't watched it, so I don't know how bad it is. I haven't watched it since I was a kid, but you know, the Jeffersons. You guys haven't. That's the kind of know? comment that
1: makes me want to go. Okay, boomer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love that. You know. You know what? I've never heard. It's the the hilarious thing about Okay, boomer is that I've never heard it actually applied to an actual baby boomer which is what makes it the funniest. Like the funny thing about it is it's like a double it's like a double comment. It's a comment on not caring what older generations are than you and a comment on the person who's older. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like I don't even care enough to find out who you are and at the same time crap on you old guy. You know what I mean? That's what's so awesome. It's like it like kind of cuts both ways. You know what I mean? I, I almost used OK Boomer um, on a comment
4: that my dad made on one of my YouTube videos. Uh, He's probably a boomer, though. He is a boomer. Yeah, that's that's why I was saying it. But I couldn't. It was just it was a little too brutal for my own father.
2: Ah, I see, I see. You know. Anyway, uh, crap on all of you millennial turdweeds, because uh, the Jeffersons theme song is one of the all-time great theme songs, and I would think as a musician, Pat that you would appreciate good 70s and 80s theme songs. I will tell you some more. Sanford and Son cannot be beat as a theme song. Sanford and Son's theme song is like one of the all-time great themes. I wholeheartedly agree
4: with you on that and, uh, and with the Jeffersons. There you go, all right. Uh,
2: so uh, beans on the grill, uh, the, the, you're gonna want, a lot of the flavor from grilling is from flare up on fat, right? So what I would do is, and the other thing is that a lot of times when I'm cooking beans on a, on, in a stove, my typical veg is kind of like modified like French culinary style you know, cooking so like not all I don't have to I don't make the little parchment parachute that you put over the top of it and all that other garbage. But, you know, my typical way to cook veg uh, I mean if you really want to be like the best, you like would par cook in like in salted boiling water, pull out, and then flash saute to finish everything out. But like the the kind of just let's get it done real fast inside is you would put your your veg and a little bit of sugar depending on what you do, either oil or butter and a little bit of uh, water, salt. You can add the pepper later if you're a believer that pepper makes things bitter, or uh, you, can, uh, you can add it at the beginning. I sometimes add a little pepper at both because I like pepper on my veg. Uh, acids, I usually add at the end just to kind of freshen it up a little bit and so that things don't turn, change color, and then <clears throat> like, like quickly steam it, right? And then after it's like steams, it reduces, the sugars will get more syrupy, and the oil will coat it. And then you can get a little bit of a brown on if you get it just right and pop it out and it's all perfect. Now on the grill, right, you're not going to have that steaming step. So you can either, um, if you want it to stay really crunchy, you can you can do like a, a high initial heat and then wrap in aluminum foil and put to the edge and let them steam themselves out. The only problem is is that things that are green have a tendency, if you're not careful, of going a little bit olive brown. um, The chlorophyll will will change. Um, If that's not a problem for you, then don't worry about it. Another thing you can do is parboil or par-steam them and then toss them in oil. I would reduce the sugar a little bit on the grill just because sugar has a tendency to really scorch on the grill with the flame. But you want enough oil on it to get a really rapid, nice heat transfer and to get some of that drip flare-up for, the, um, for the, the, the flavor. And I'm assuming that your grill grate is small enough that the beans won't fall through. If not, they sell at the Home Depot Little Baskets that, um, that are meant for this to hold the kind of hold small veg in so that they don't, um, fall through. Um, I actually use those. I use not those kinds of baskets, but I use the clamshell meat baskets when I'm grilling on the thing, because I do what I like. To, I I do like extremely high heat, almost Tandoor style cooking where it's off on, off on, off on. And so those like those baskets make it easy for me to do a high volume of food in rotation because my food's going on like two or three separate times. But if you're not going to do that, just make sure your beans don't uh, fall in. And I want to probably give them some nice color on the grill. Otherwise, you you know you could just steam it on the grill in, in you know in a packet of foil with some water and salt and pepper. But then why would you bother grilling? You won't have all those nice grill flavors. Interesting fact: in the old days. Uh, Like, you know, before, you know, back when everything had to be cooked over a fire, people would spend all of their time and energy trying to make sure that the fire taste wasn't in the food because everything was cooked by fire. And now we're the reverse. You know what I mean?
3: Well, he's grilling outside because it's too hot to grill to heat up the house.
2: Yeah, but grilling is still considered a a desirable. In other words, it's a desirable thing to have now, that grilled flavor. So you might as well do it if you're going to if you're going to do it. Whereas... You know, like I say, like, you know, in the, in the 1700s, you're like, mm, everything tastes of the fire. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it's 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 just interesting culturally. It's not, <clears throat> has nothing to do with Pat's problem, but just interesting how culturally we've switched. Uh, it's the same uh, way that- Pat,
3: you have that other thing that Dave didn't answer when we texted him. Uh, Pat texted me? Yeah, and I followed up and then I followed up again and then he ignored it. Pat, the only way to get through to Dave is to tweet him because he cares about his. That's
2: life. not true. If there's you can call 50 the texts. Show. If there's yeah. 50. Listen, people, again, okay, boomer on myself. If there's 50 texts, I read the last one. The you last say that's one. That's
3: the only way to get in touch the, with you. What yeah, is but the only like way when you guys. Touch you you now? guys.
2: Did, okay, Nastasia Lopez and her friends, and also, unfortunately, because Nastasia Lopez is my business partner with the boondoggler, you know, like the, you get these text chains where it's like your phone sounds like it's like Vesuvius erupting out of your pocket. Oh, tell me about it. L- listen,
4: living on the West Coast and waking up to one of these things that's been going on for three hours since 530 in the morning is, is a yeah, specific yeah, level yeah. of I read,
2: the, I read the last text maybe one or two before. But if, if if it's like a 30 text chain long, oh my it God, my thumb- three.
3: It was three texts, right? I, ju-
2: sure.
4: I just want to be clear, Dave, that I'm I'm totally cool with all of this and uh, uh, I'm not throwing any shade about this because I don't read text messages or emails either. Um, but I would like to detour because uh, as Nastasia knows, I used to live in New Mexico and while I was there, I fell in love with hatch chili, uh, green mm. chili, red chili that goes on uh, just about everything in, in, in New Mexican cuisine. And being in Los Angeles now, um, one of the things I love about it is that that's actually recognized here and you can get hatch chili, which in most of the other places I've lived, you don't really see that. And so right now, uh, end, of, end of summer, early autumn is hatch chili season. Um, it's the time when, when you can get it. I'm going to buy a big bushel of it and roast it out on my uh, charcoal grill and uh, put it in everything for the next few months, freeze it, et cetera. And I had the idea the other day, I was out some, with some friends and they were talking about infusing uh, whiskey with something they were doing. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I could put some uh, hatch chili. I could infuse some booze with hatch chili and get my, uh, my hatch fix and fuel my alcoholism at the same time. Uh, and also it's then something to do, which is really what being single and unemployed in the pandemic is. It's all about filling the time between uh, staring out the window for an hour in the afternoon and watching TV at night.
2: So, um, wh- wh- what? Wait, how long? How long is this time? The stare time? An hour of stare time? Uh, yeah, plus or minus. Okay.
4: Yeah, I've actually been doing so, some of it uh, during the radio show while while other people are talking.
2: Nice. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, it's good to, good to stay on top. So, hatch <laughs> chili. I actually just cooked hatch chili two nights ago. Um, so you're you're roasting them and then you're gonna peel them, right? Because one of the problems with hatch chili is that the um, the skin is relatively tough on a hatch. Yeah, chili. Yeah, the so skin most, is bad. Yeah. You gotta peel it after you roast it. Yeah. For those of you, if you buy the fresh hatch and you're like, "What's the big deal about?" Just realize that, like, unlike a very thin-skinned chili, like a um, you know, like a shishito or a padrone or one of these other things, you should like take the the skin off of it after you roast it. Although other than that, they, they strangely do make a good kind of, well, they, you can fry them up or even if you, like a, I, I roasted mine actually in the Breville Smart Air. I just tossed a little oil on it to increase heat transfer and Breville Smarted it and then peel the skin off. Good. Well, excellent. And, excellent and also
4: you can freeze them with the skin on and it's easier to peel the skin off after you freeze them if you're freezing them for later.
2: Oh, good tip. Hey, listen, if you have a bushel, you think it's like, I can't picture a bushel in my mind, but are you at the point where you want to Amazon one of the rotary, one of the rotary roasters? I'm not, like at, the I'm not roasters? at that
4: point, but a lot of the uh, the bougie grocery stores like Gelson's and uh, 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 Bristol Farms and things like that around Los Angeles have roasters that come to them on the weekends.
2: Uh, oh, yeah. And so,
4: uh, so they have those. And, and in New Mexico, of course, those are just on the
2: side of the highway. You drive down the road and there's a dude there spinning that thing all day. Uh, and you I think just they're pretty break. cheap now those things if like on eBay like you get people who are like as a cottage industry will just make them and sell them and do you know what an alternative use for those on your grill outdoors is besides hatch chilies what's that coffee roasting yeah. people use them as uh, coffee roasters on their grill as well because it's got it's it's a similar problem you want the heat to get in you want the smoke to get out and uh, you need to keep it relatively um evenly heated i would I would guess that you would turn it faster for coffee because I've never owned one of those things but just FYI. Okay. This feels like so, it could
4: it could take up my afternoons for days.
2: There you go. That's what I'm saying. Thank it might you. be worth it for you if you're sitting there roasting the coffee, uh, and you know, if anyone wants like beginning home coffee roasting stuff, I'll you know ask and we'll give it to you offline or whatever. Anyway, uh, onto the uh, text Onto it. the <laughs> onto the liquor problem. Um, most of the liquor infusions that I have done have been with uh, spicier peppers than um, than the hatch. Uh, another interesting thing is the skins might be of use here. I don't know how bitter they are on their own. I just I just don't like them from a texture standpoint. Um, so you're not going to get a lot of heat off of the hatch. You will get uh, flavor. I would probably think it would be better in a white liquor because most of those kind of green-flavored things are better in white liquors. So, um, I mean, you could try it. I mean, I would, I would just do a, a test of, uh, you know, just like, you know, smash one into some bourbon and taste it and see whether you like what's going on. But, um, a lot of times things that whose primary flavor is green, reply, re- rely on the kind of green freshness from the green leaf volatiles that you get out of, uh, something. And they can be, they can change somewhat and become more swampy over time. So that's the one thing I would kind of guard against is just making sure that they're not getting swampy. So I would, I would, I would test it in a small amount uh, and just, you know, I would taste it after like a week or two and then I would see, um, then I would, I would hold it, right? So you have it all frozen so you can do it whenever you want, right? So then after a week or so, I would taste it, see if it's got enough flavor. And if it does, I would, um, I would probably strain it off as soon as the flavor gets where you want. And then I would do a stability test. And usually stability tests um, for something that contains fresh veg flavor, like they start changing after like a week or two, you'll start noticing the, the flavor in your mind, quote unquote, deteriorate, but all is not lost because then you can hold it for like two or three months, sipping a little bit at a time to see whether it changes. And some things come back after six months. i I've, I've had things come back after like eight months. If it hasn't started coming back to goodness again within, you know, eight months or a year, it probably won't. The longest I've ever tried to store something to see whether it would come back is five years. It did not come back. Radish. The radish. I was hoping the fart smell would go away on a a radish uh, infusion that I had made. It did not. Uh, It stayed. But so he's just
3: infusing by putting it into the bottle. He's not centrifuging. He's just putting the.
2: Well, the 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 problem with centrifuging is that it was if you could centrifuge it, but then you're just you're literally just adding pepper juice to it, right? Or you you could do like a hustino, right? You're gonna lower the ABV of it rather significantly. the The good thing about doing a hustino is some of the products from the liquor will be you know, it's it's an interesting process it's different i, I was thinking you were going to do a straight a straight infusion more of a, a like a, a traditional straight in, infusion now you could also say are you doing it with roasted or are you doing it with with fresh right they're going to be very different i would bet the roasted one is probably a more stable flavor than the fresh but if fresh is what you're looking for um you know it depends like you know I, I think a lot of the characteristic like stuff of a, of a hatch comes out of the roasting. Um, I've never really sat around eating them fresh. I mean, what do you think, Pat? Uh,
4: I wouldn't, I, I don't think I have either. So, you know, the roasting is definitely, uh, you get that smokiness, you know, you get that nice, that nice fiery grill taste to it that you want in everything you grill.
2: There you go. Nowadays. Um, yeah. So I would just, I would just try to do a traditional infusion. And then if you like it, I mean, obviously, you know, if you mail, uh, you know, us some, we can spin some down in a spins all and then like, you know, send you back the frozen, the frozen cubes wrapped in wet newspaper and, you know, and dirt. Fresh from we'll send you a package mom. full of dirt and yeah, yeah, yeah. That Yeah, Mama Mama Lopez will wrap anything in wet newspaper and dirt. Uh, what was the now, thing if she said once? If I had Tomato my own, mites?
4: if I had my own spins all, would I, I would, I could do that myself. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I would want to spin the
2: roasted peppers to. There's two ways to do it. You can make the juice, but I would actually recommend doing what's called a Justino where you blend the liquor and the pepper together and then spin them out. I've had bad luck with fresh red bell peppers that bad. I should say bad luck. I've had okay luck. It's never where I kind of wanted it to be. Um, Whereas I've had terrific luck with, you know, hot pepper so and it going lot to lots depend on the booze but you would just blend them together and then spin them out and throw away the the puck but the, again the problem with that is that you are lowering the um the alcohol level so you're going to want to start with a booze that's fairly high in uh in alcohol like everclear and then uh well that's it but that tastes Disgusting, But let's say you did Everclear. If you did Everclear, you could do almost one-to-one Chili and Everclear and spin it out and have something that is, you know, on the order of 40% alcohol, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that should be, like, as Hatch and as stable as you could possibly be. Now, if you did Everclear and Hatch, right... Um, it depends on how much of that hatch flavor is coming through. Maybe if you use it in small enough quantities, then that could be like an adjunct that you add to other things, right? Mm-hmm. So then you'd have like, you know, your your main gin, and then you'd put a little bit of your, your hatch tincture into the uh, into the resulting uh, thing to make it a hatch martini, mm-hmm. right? Something like that could be. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: That sounds like a great way to spend the next couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, an hour a day... And this should take a couple of weeks of experimenting. And since you're experimenting with liquor, it'll blur that out. And then you'll have to rewatch whatever the first couple of shows that you watch after you start uh, into television.
4: That's great. And the next thing I know, it'll be October and I'm 42 and unemployed and uh, life is beautiful.
2: What do I mean? I thought I thought that you. Were, I thought oh, they're not. No one's performing. No yet. one's.
4: No they're, one's working. Yeah. No. Everything was. Uh, everything was going great until March, and then uh, you know I, I work mostly with orchestras, and uh, orchestras have a hundred people on stage and a couple thousand people in the audience. And that doesn't really work right now. And so and there's, uh,
2: there's no way to session that, right? There's no way to just like show up at a studio and session an orchestra.
4: I right? mean, people are doing it, but it's, uh, you know, that's really cost prohibitive. And right now nobody has money coming in because they're not selling tickets and online content is not uh, is not. You know people haven't figured out a good way to monetize that Um, and plus i'm not as a saxophonist There's no saxophone full-time saxophonist in orchestras every you know It's not like being a clarinet player where that's your job and you you get a salary for that Um, I just go in when they're needed and I play with different orchestras up and down the coast Uh, And so uh, right now there's uh, there's nothing and so i'm just uh, at home doing my own thing which has actually been really uh, really enlightening and and really a lot of fun. I'm exploring new grounds uh, in terms of making my own music and making videos and playing solo concerts for neighbors. I had a concert last night. I have one tomorrow night and tonight. Uh, so uh, you know, I'm finding ways to keep busy. Uh, but it's uh, it's definitely a lifestyle change, and it's it's a lot harder to do because now I'm drunk all the time.
2: Right, right, right. Well, that's you know, classic musician. So you're all right.
4: Yeah, exactly. Been training my yeah. whole life for this.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, are people doing like uh, commercial work? Is that, that like is that gone up, or is it basically stayed where it used to be? So all those jobs are already taken by those commercial session musicians.
4: Uh, there is a little bit, a limited amount of that going on. It is basically uh, mostly taken by those session musicians, um, and the difference is that most of it has now moved to home studios. So people are actually recording. You know, you'll get you'll get a call to um, record your own part and at your home and people do it in their living room or their home studios. Um, and then uh, the people mixing the sound and mixing the music for the, for the project have to take all of those different parts of a hundred different people and mix them together. And, you know, that's basically what happens in a studio, but in the studio, everybody's in the same room and all of the environments are controlled. But when people do it at their home, everybody has a different setup. Everybody has different sound, uh, different background noises and things like that. So it's, it's a lot more complicated. And so, um, a lot of projects have gone to that. A lot of projects, uh, some projects went to uh, completely digital scale uh, scores um, where they use uh, you know, they use MIDI and sampled instruments and things uh, to create the scores. And so it's, it's going to hit the, the studio music industry uh, as well. It is hitting the studio music
2: industry as well. How much different, like, in other words, like how much do you think is lost if you're like the, the people who are really good at, it, at not being together and playing? Um, I would say
4: it's, it's a lot more cumbersome, um, but uh, the way that a lot of, uh, a lot of studio projects are recorded, um, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll stripe it where they, uh, instead of having like an entire orchestra playing, like if you think of Star Wars and you think of the main theme of Star Wars and you've got an entire, you, got, you know, all the brass and all the strings and all the woodwinds and the harps and everything playing at the same time, um, they'll go through and they'll say, okay, right now we're just gonna do only the low strings and they have the cellos and basses and, and they'll just record that part. And then they'll go back and they'll do the the violins and the the violas and then they'll go and they'll do the upper woodwinds. And so, you know, you're, you're playing with a few other people usually, but not usually the whole uh, experience of the whole orchestra. Um, And as a musician you have to respond to everything that's going on you have to you know You have to hear and fit your part into it and one of the things that studio musicians are so good at is playing uh, So perfectly that their whatever they're playing is going to fit can fit in No matter what with everything else that's going on because they're playing exactly in time exactly in tune um and exactly with the right inflections and so um You lose a little bit of that by doing it on your own with nobody else in the room But at the same time the way that that uh, industry works um, uh, You know it's, it's people have been prepping for that. That's, that, that's how, that's how they work anyway. Um, I think what's lost from it though, uh, is that it is so much more labor intensive to, uh, prepare tracks for people to work with in their home studios and then to take individual tracks from people in their home studios and balance them and clean them up and get them all consistent and then work them together. So it's, it's so much more labor intensive on the part of the mixers and the editors um, that that, uh, that that then takes more time and more money. And that's what causes the slowdown.
2: So I'm let's say I'm going to hire Pat Posey to pay, play a piece of uh, music. Let's say for my upcoming uh, our upcoming product release, which isn't until probably this time next year. Now, Ugh, right. Stars?
3: But that's a Broadway type thing.
2: No, yeah, but let's say we we're gonna. I'm just. What the hell ask, is let's, that say, let's say we're, to we're gonna hire Pat Posey, right? And we haven't decided Broadway. yet. We haven't decided yet. We haven't decided whether the music's going to be didgeridoo, whether it's going to be clarinet, whether it's going to be saxophone or oboe. Do you charge differently depending on like the instrument and whether or not you're like these jokers aren't going to find another didgeridooist, <laughs> so I'm going to jack them for the didgeridoo. Well. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, that certainly goes into the calculus. The, you know, the, um, we musicians, we have a union and the union has for a long time fought for, um, for, uh, rights for musicians. And one of the things that has been in place forever is, uh, doubling rates. And so if you play one instrument, you get paid, there's a certain rate that is set, uh, depending on the work for playing one instrument for a certain amount of time. And there are work rules that go along with that. If you are asked to play a second instrument, then, uh, you, get a doubling fee, which is generally uh, 20-25% on top of whatever you're getting. And so, uh, and then there's, you know, you get doubles beyond that. If you get three instruments, there's another fee on top of that. And so it can go on and on. So basically every instrument that you play, uh, you get get paid more money and that percentage, uh, which starts at roughly 25%,
2: decreases slightly with every instrument that's on top of that. So you make more money if I have you play all those instruments. Yeah, that's true. And it, but is so, but this it, 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 trying to incentivize me to hire different musicians? Because I'm like, whoa.
4: No, because if you I, hire uh, if you hire me to play saxophone and then someone else to play clarinet, you're essentially paying 200% because each of us are getting paid 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you hire me to play saxophone and clarinet, you're paying 125%. So it's cheaper to hire one person, which is why if you look, um, part of why if you look in a pit at a Broadway show, um, you know, you have people down there that are playing in the wind section and playing flute, clarinet, oboe. I mean, West Side Story, the first, the lead read book for West Side Story is soprano sax, alto sax,
2: uh, piccolo, flute, and clarinet. And that's all one musician just rack and scale up? That's one musician, yeah this is how the triangulist makes fat bank because they're doing triangle and all those other weird little we're not, we're not. percussionists
4: are, are a whole different ball game. So percussionists, uh, as I understand it, percussion, percussion and timpani are two separate instruments, but all of the other percussion gear, um, are included under the umbrella of percussion. So someone gets paid one fee to play all of that. However, as a percussionist, you also get cartage, which is uh, an extra fee on top of your performance fee for schlepping all of that gear. Mm. Which we don't get as doublers. You know, if I have to bring seven horns to a gig, I get paid a lot of money for the gig, but I don't get (laughs) cartage. Cartage.
2: All right, we
3: we got it, we got it, we got to go. Pat, thank you. Yeah, I
4: got to go. I have something to do too.
2: <laughs> yeah, all right, great. Super. Thanks for that. Okay. All right, uh, thanks, thanks for calling in. Thanks, guys. Right. Bye bye. So, uh, Dave, I'll email. text you. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we got a question in from Jacob Schroeder. Greetings, cooking issues. Jacob Schroeder here, writing from Des Moines. I've never been to Iowa. You guys ever been to Iowa?
1: Yeah, no. Iowa City. It's nice.
2: Yeah. Huh. Uh, I am new to the game when it comes to listening to podcasts and have gotten a great start getting caught up with your extensive back- backlog. Only on 87, though. Jacob's only on 87. Uh, Well, you're in for a long, long, long ride. Uh, I've started a digital note to keep track of the myriad questions I have, but wanted to start with a few that are currently on the front burner. Forgive me if these questions have been covered on the shows uh, in one of the 300 episodes I have not yet listened to. One, I made a corn slash tea slash infusion uh, by covering all of the inedible parts Cobs with kernels removed, fresh hus- husks, silk stem, etc., with water, bringing it to a boil, removing it from the heat, letting it sit for an hour before straining. The resulting product has a clean, sweet, grassy aroma and flavor. If it's possible, what would I need to turn this stuff into vinegar? Uh, and I'm also open to any other solutions of what to do with two, ca- two gallons of this corn goodness that don't include reduction, super stew, uh, using as a cooking medium for grains, um, etc got a refractometer, so talk to me in terms of bricks. Well, anyway, if you want to make vinegar, the key thing with vinegar is, remember, vinegar starts with uh, alcohol. So you either have to add alcohol to it, or you have to add enough sugar to it to make it ferment into uh, alcohol. So like, if you're starting with sugar, uh, you're going to want to get somewhere um, between Uh, 10 and 18 bricks on it to uh, get the sugar level where it will be, pitch it with yeast, it will go through alcoholic fermentation, and then if you're lucky, once oxygen hits, it'll go through acetic acid fermentation and, and, and go through. Um, and obviously, the higher the final alcohol level, the higher the uh, acidity of the, of the vinegar when you're done. However, uh, you don't want to go too much alcohol because anything over about 12% alcohol, and it's going to start decreasing uh, the activity of the acetobacter. And remember, acetobacter needs uh, um, air, uh, oxygen, and anything above 15 will pretty much stop it. So those, those are the kind of numbers that you're going to want to work with. Um, if you want to get a book on it, uh, Heritage Radio's own uh, Michael Harlan Turkell in 2017 wrote a book called Acid Trip, Travels in the World of Vinegar with Recipes from Leading Chefs, Insights from Top Producers, and Step-by-Step Instructions on How to Make Your Own. Harry uh,
1: Rosenblum also, if you're promoting Heritage Network people. Yeah. That's a good book. Nice. Yep.
2: All right, cool. All right. Uh, and also Sandor Katz's books on, uh, fermentation are good to have, uh, on vinegar specifically. I don't know whether, uh, Ariel's or David Zilber's book goes into vinegar in their fermentation. Zilber's does, yes.
1: And they even accelerate it with use of an aquarium pump.
2: So, oh, to oxygenate it? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that sounds very, that sounds very, uh, very Noma-y. Um, now, uh... Alex and Aki from uh, Ideas and Food uh, released a recipe that is not that is based on just adding booze to a liquid. Uh, and the, you know, they when they do their maple syrup uh, vinegar, they just started with uh, rum and maple syrup. Uh, so they did eight, they used a live vinegar. It's actually primarily a live vinegar. So they started with a live vinegar, 800 grams of live vinegar, 950 grams of maple syrup, 300 grams uh, rum. Uh, 200 grams water, uh, and then they just let that thing uh, rock. So you could do any any kind of one of a number of those things. Just remember that um, you need to have enough uh, kind of good other micronutrients in there aside from just sugar for them to feed on. For all you know, the corn stalk will provide enough. So you, it's possible that just adding the right amount of booze to the corn stuff is enough to get the acetobacter kicked in if you put a, a good mother in it. But I would read, read a book by an expert uh, on vinegar, but it sounds like it, it should work. A uh, second question is, I recently acquired a, an OC2100R, a.k.a. the Korean machine, uh, which is a it's Oco, o, the brand name is OCOO. Uh, and if you look at it online, I'd never seen one of these before. It's, it's basically like a long-term like electric pressure cooker slash double boiler. So it's like a ceramic thing that maintains like a high heat, but under pressure for a long time. Um, so I think any one of the long-term pressure cooking things would work in it. Like, uh uh, you, but you could do a regular pressure cooker too, like humming eggs. Uh, I think people have been experimenting doing like hyper accelerated black garlic things with them. Um, I don't know, but I've never used one, but your question is, um, by the way, uh, I I don't know whether the one that you bought is a, uh, a European model or a, um, or an American, uh, uh, sorry, or a, a South Korean model. The difference between South Koreans power is 220 volt, 60 Hertz and Europe's power is 220 volt. 50 hertz, But since there's no motor in it, I'm assuming that this thing can work well on either 50 or 60 hertz. I was only able to find information on it uh, on a website whose language I could not um, read. Uh, so you say the electrical plug that's attached um, does not have a grounded plug. I'm no expert electrician, but operate under the assumption that grounded plugs are better than non-grounded plugs. Should I replace a non-grounded plug with a grounded one? Replacing a grounded plug in a non-grounded piece of equipment is not going to be helpful because there needs to be a path to ground for the actual uh equipment if it's in a kitchen and you're cooking in the united states you're going to be cooking with a, a gfi and um if you're using a gfi um it shouldn't be a problem just remember i mean i can't see the converter that you sent but you're going to need to step this thing up to 220 volts all right um let me see toby heap what we, we probably gotta call it for the day Oh, we have a call?
1: No, no we'll, we call, we <laughs> we'll call, save these like, four yeah, questions call, for next edit, time.
2: Uh, save for next time. I got all these questions and I have I have a huge classics in the field. All right. Well, the classics in the field for today was Richard Scarry. I am a bunny. I live in a hollow tree. See? That is a great That is a, You know you know it Matt, it's not just me now. You you're you're <laughs> familiar with it?
1: I'm sorry. I don't actually know it.
2: I failed you. What about torch? Okay, listen. I'll say this on the way out. Uh, anyone out there? We have an interesting marketing uh, problem. Is that so? I don't know if you know this, but Nastasi and I made this product called the Searsall, which is like a handheld broiler uh, that uh, it turns your torch into a handheld broiler. And Nastasy, we got to get five. We got to get five minutes on torches. There's uh, that, and we make a, a centrifuge called the Spinzall, which is currently out of stock, and we're trying to find out when it's going to come back and stop. Stop pestering John about it. We will let you know yes. the factory won't get back to us. We will let you know when we can convince them to build it again. You, Americans don't understand that it's the customer is not always right when you're talking to a factory. We're begging and pleading with them to make another round of this stuff. We'll let you know. But it is at least five months out. At least. Um, so anyways – uh, we have this habit of making products that don't have any other analogs on the market, and then we have to figure out, well, how much, you know, how how many of these can we sell? Like, like, what is a price that is reasonable? Because then we have to argue with the factory to get their price down to a level where we can afford to buy it, to sell it to you guys. So anyone out there who knows how to figure out, like, marketing for products that don't exist, right – Give us a holler. Maybe, you know, maybe we can talk. Right, Stas, or no? no. Um, lastly, uh, Burns-O-Matic, the people that make the TS-8000 torch, which is the torch that we have been recommending uh, to everyone for... How many years have we been making this thing, Stas? Nine. That long? No, we haven't been making the series all well, for that me. long. I don't know, but it hasn't been that long. We've only been working together 13 years, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Eight, eight something? Anyway, so the... Um, We've been recommending this one torch for all of these years. Millions of dollars in revenue in torches for the burn people. And a couple of weeks ago, I go on their website, and they trash talk the Searzall and say that the Searzall is not recommended to use with their torch because, John, do you have the quote there anywhere? Uh, Can you find like, it real quick?
1: Yeah, let's see. you yeah, find it real quick. Clean.
2: But they, they tell lies about the Searzall product, Right, and then tell you that instead of using the Sears All, you should use their heat shrink torch, which I've tested is garbage, doesn't do the same thing at all, right? And so currently, I am mad. Okay. You got it. Yeah,
1: Burnzomatic torches are precisely engineered to produce the most efficient flame with the tip provided. Modifications or attachments may impact the torch performance and are not recommended. Um, where is it? Please note, Burnzomatic product warranty is void if it's used with this. Uh, if you need heat.
2: Wait, why isn't it saying it? I bet oh, they, they, they
1: took they it modified down. It. Oh, they definitely modified boom!
2: it. People, people, wow. people cooking issue listeners. Boom. So they had this they had this thing up on their website that said that using the Sears all melts their torch from the inside out. And I, I and I sent them a nasty 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 email. I said, "Listen, you can you cannot recommend our product if you like It's your company and it's your product, but it's not your right to lie about us. And so, and so, and I like included their quote and they changed it. Huh? Look at that. Huh? So anyway, I'm dying to find another person's uh, another company that I can, you know, try to sell a lot of their product for them, and then get zero respect back from them. <laughs> and so, uh, it, you know, to that end, we've looked on the Amazon. By the way, Amazon now is no longer selling the TS8000 at the at the old cheap price. So you have to get it at big box like Lowe's or at Home Depot. But the one that everyone is selling now is a 9xTL from Blue Flame, which is looks to me like a straight knockoff of the of the TS-8000. It's not made by the same people because when you hold them like side by side they're slightly different but it is a straight uh, knockoff. Now the people who make this blue flame I think literally just reverse engineered it and don't really understand uh, kind of torch technology as well as I'd like them to because um, it's not tuned right out of the box. So Right now, I can't recommend to people on Amazon to buy uh, the 9 XTL, the Blue Flame, simply because if you pull it out of the box and just try to use it, it doesn't work. There's way too much gas comes out. Um, I had to turn the gas knob adjustment until it was almost off. And to get it to work uh, with the same proper number of uh, of gas uh, output in terms of BTUs as the TS8000, but I'm going to do more measurement. But just know that if you detune, also the vortex generator is a little too close to the surface on the on the 9XTL. Uh, but it will work. But if you get one of these blue flame things, please, and maybe we maybe we can post something uh, on um, Booker Index. I'll send a picture of what the flame should not look like for use with a torch or with a all, and what it should look like and then those of you that have one of these blue flames can properly tune your torch to uh have it um work with the with the sears all right out of the box and again more on that because we're taking all kinds of infrared photography and in the next uh of all's and in the next month or two uh we should have some product news on stuff that we're uh working on uh, but anyway, that's that, and the rest of it we'll have to uh, save for later. We're back in stock on Amazon, right, Nastasia? Yes. All right. You have anything else uh, for business that for our business that you want to tell people?
3: No, I think uh, according to Matt, we have to go.
2: Okay. Jeez, Louise. All right. Cooking issues. Cooking issues is powered by Simplecast.